I'm your host, Lily Terrell, the community outreach archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose, Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you are listening to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. Growing up, my idea of Black women in literature was limited. I knew Toni Morrison and Alice Walker existed, but their works were never on any syllabus in any classroom throughout my secondary education. When I came to work at Rose Library, I learned more about Black women writers. Not just that they existed, but that they were not a monolith, that my literary education was really lacking. However, what I like about this archive and many archives across the country is that we are able to connect students to these women's legacies so that they are no longer hidden. And on this episode, we get to talk to someone who is working to make sure more Black women are discovered. Emory alumna Monet Lewis-Timmons, an English PhD candidate at the University of Delaware. My name is Monet Lewis-Timmons. I am originally from the Bay Area, California. Um, I'm also an Emory alumna. I graduated in 2018. I double majored in English and African-American studies and I am currently a fourth year PhD student at the University of Delaware. Well, thank you for um, this interview that you're giving us today. Thank you um, for having me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. I yeah. um, want to talk about your area of study and what brings you back to Emory. That's a really great question. And it's amazing how when I think about my academic and personal journey, it always comes full circle. So right now as a PhD student, I'm studying 19th and 20th century Black women's literature and archives with a particular focus on the genealogical formation of Black women's archives. So what that looks like is what does it mean to form your own archive as a Black woman? And then what does it mean for another Black woman to take up that archive? And so I'm doing that by looking at a Black woman figure from the late 19th and early 20th century named Alice Dunbar Nelson. And the name Dunbar may sound familiar because she was the first wife of poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, However, I like to look at her beyond that status. And I like to look at her activism, her role as an educator and journalist, and the impact that she had on the Wilmington, Delaware community in the early 20th century. So I look at her personal archive and what it meant for her to form her archive as a Black woman during this period. But I also look at her niece, Pauline Young's role in taking up that archive after her aunt's passing in 1935. So like her aunt, Pauline Young was an educator, an activist, a trained librarian, a historian. And she really took it upon herself after her aunt's passing to maintain and preserve this collection um, for decades. And she has this years-long journey of trying to donate her aunt's papers to different repositories and institutions. And she eventually sells the papers to the University of Delaware, um, with some of those papers also at Clark Atlanta University. So I think studying this genealogical lineage of Black women's archives has really just informed not only the content of the archives and Black women's literature overall, but just what this formation and this practice means as a longer tradition in Black women's history. What is the importance of 
of having uh, Black women in the archive? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that that's something that we grapple with, not only as researchers and scholars, but just as people living our daily lives, especially as Black people. For so long, we've been taught that our history is either irrelevant or it doesn't matter, or we're not taught anything about our history or ourselves. And that can do a lot for your own self-worth and self-esteem growing up. And so being able to see these women represented, um, not only just for themselves, but as themselves, right? So like knowing that they were active within this practice, it informs not only the public history and public memory of Black women's archives, um, but it also shows that we've always had a place in history and we've always been thinking about ourselves and future generations. And so when I think about the importance of Black women's archives, I think it gives us a space to imagine not only a reconstructed past, but a reconstructed future as well, knowing that we can still exist within the future. I like that. I, um, I'm going to geek out for a moment here, and mm-hmm. I'm going to mention <laughs> Hamilton and yes. that song called Burn, where Eliza says, I'm erasing myself from the narrative, right? And But in essence, she preserved Hamilton's narrative by creating an archive for him. And we know um, a lot about Hamilton more so because of the items. Now, of course, she's not an African-American woman, but she's a woman preserving that heritage of her husband. And I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on, as women, and especially Black women in the archive, um, who's collecting their narrative? And are some of those narratives being centered more around their husband's lives than theirs? Mm, Yeah. And I'm really happy that you brought up that example, too, of Hamilton, because we see so many times of the papers and the collections that we have of these important male figures are usually because of the woman in their lives. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. The woman having to keep these records um, to organize them, to find places to donate them to. So it's a different type of labor. Right. It's an emotional labor. It's a labor of love. But a lot of times this labor is erased from the finding aids or from the archival history within itself. I think when we're thinking about Black women collecting their own archives or even choosing to erase their own archives, there is some type of power and control in that practice that isn't talked about enough. And I think that more credit has to be given to the woman in these male figures' lives and even in their own lives when we think about how these archives came to be. Absolutely. A lot of times in the past, archives only had the name of uh, the male, right? Yes. And they Mm -hmm. did not include their wives. And now as a way to uh, rectify that, we're putting more of that emphasis on both because like you said, a lot of times those histories also includes the wives, Mm -hmm. their, their lives, their impact, you know, her life was also valuable in the stuff that you did. I um, had met someone once who um, was married to someone who we had, their papers and um 
she said something very important of like, you know, yes, my husband did these amazing things, but I was also doing great things as well. And exactly. that struck me, right? Yeah. And, and so when I think about Black women in the archive and, and thinking about, um, I've worked at two archives now, and it's something that I've seen more here than anywhere that there are more Black women in the archives, but I have learned more about history and Black women yeah. in the archives than I've ever in, in, a, in a history book. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me, like, what drew you to to this role, like this idea of like, I I really want to study more about this. Just to even go back to your point, um, just being able to use the archives to learn these histories that you're not being taught either in class or at home. And I think that was something that I've always been aware of, even as a child growing up in public schools, not really being taught the history that was relevant to my identity um, and my mom, my mother actually took it upon herself to teach my sisters and I alternative histories, black history. You know, she knew that we weren't <laughs> being taught <laughs> properly within our schools. And I mean, she would drag us to the library, <laughs> you know, have all of these textbooks for us. And I'm so grateful for that early work that she was instilling within us. So I would say it started there, but it also I solidified this passion really during my undergraduate career here at Emory. And it was during my sophomore year taking a class with Dr. Nagayati Warren on Alice Walker's novels that I really began to have this passion for archival research. So part of that class was going into the archives here at the Rose Library and using the Alice Walker papers to create our own um, seminar paper, our final essay. And while I had been familiar with Alice Walker's novels, you know, The Color Purple, Meridian, uh, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, it was when I entered the archives and sat with her papers and her journals and photographs and scrapbooks where I had such a greater appreciation for her as a novelist and a poet because I was able to see a different side of her. That's really when I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I was able to see her activism. Um, I was able to see her role as a mother, as a lover and a friend, and her connections with other Black women writers. And it really felt empowering to see another side of a novelist that I grew to love. Um, But I think her papers allowed me to learn something that you don't always get through reading someone's literature. Couldn't agree more. Like that's the thing mm-hmm. that um that I always emphasize when I do community outreach, especially mm-hmm. through either K through twelve or community groups or just like we're doing right now in the podcast, right? Yeah. Like when you're uh, when you have someone on a pedestal, they're not human. They're mm-hmm. not um they don't make mistakes, right? Everything is perfect, but life is not perfect. Right. Life is not black and white. There are great areas, but holistically looking at someone in the archive, you can see the value. Like you can put yourself in you can put things into perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's um it's never a yes or no, right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's more information, it's more engagement, and it it makes that person more real, more honest, right? Yeah. How, you, how you encounter them. Yeah, you definitely see that they are complicated figures, just like the rest of us. 
And like I said, it just makes you so much more appreciative for their novels and the work that they do while keeping in the background, oh, this person was going through real life (laughs) human things. Um, So like you said, just bringing humanity to them and their work. And when we bring humanity to their work, as someone who is doing an internship with these materials, how does that impact the students and their engagement with these archives? Yeah, it definitely reminds students to take advantage of these papers. I think especially Emory students while they're here, because it gives them an opportunity to just really sit with the materials But it also offers a different type of research that I don't think we are taught to value as students and as scholars. I think sometimes we are taught to find a right answer or a right outcome. And the archives really complicates that and says, well, this is someone's life. This is someone's, you know, these are papers of someone important. And um, it really challenges you to think differently about what you're seeing and to make an assessment or analysis based on these documents and these materials. So I think when we're teaching students, you know, oh, look at this photograph or, you know, what does this newspaper clipping make you think about this time period? It really forces them to take a step back, you know, think about the historical context or, you know, the literary context that they're learning in their class, but also to think about their own life experiences and to enter the archive with that perspective as well. And so you um, graduated, yay, from Emory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you went on to the University of Delaware and mm-hmm. you continued on in learning about the archives and what drew you to the person who you're doing your research on? Like, what was it about her life or being in the archive that you're like, I want to know more and I want to let other people know more about her? Yeah, it was actually during my first semester in grad school. (laughs) Um, I knew that I wanted to do something with Black women's literature and Black women's archives because of my experiences here at Emory. And it was a class on the Black Atlantic. And someone had mentioned to me, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we have Alice Dunbar Nelson's papers. And I was like, who? (laughs) And I was like, oh, I don't I don't even know who that is. And they're like, oh, yeah, she's the wife of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Yeah, her papers are in special collections. You should check them out. And so I did. And I didn't really even know what I was looking for. Honestly, I knew that she identified as a Creole black woman. So I was going to focus on that identity And I had also got word that there was the papers or the letters that she has really with another Black woman, um, Afro-Puerto Rican Black woman named Edwina B. Cruz. And so I was going to focus on what it meant for them to be educators at um, Howard High. I was going to focus on kind of this geographical binding of them coming together to create a curriculum and um, a high school full of Black excellence. But when I started to look further into the collection, I found these letters from Edwina B. Cruz to Alice Dunbar Nelson and found out that they had a romantic relationship together. And this just blew my mind because I was (laughs) like, wait, no one told me this, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so it really struck me that, well, not only was she, you know, married to another man during this time, but... The fact that these women use their letters to communicate with one another secretly, privately, 
um, to share their love for one another, but also to show their care for one another. Mm. And it really just changed my perspective on how we talk about queer and lesbian relationships, especially in the early 20th century. And so, yeah, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. (laughs) I really want to continue to look at her papers. And from there, I really figured that she was a complicated figure. Um, She had her own struggles with mental health, domestic intimate partner violence, um, police brutality. You know, she had so many self-doubts about her own writing and her own career. And it felt very relevant um, and very familiar. And so I held on to that. And it was actually the following semester where Dr. Jesse Erickson asked me if I wanted to be part of an upcoming exhibition on her life and legacy through the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course I want to do this. (laughs) So I ended up becoming a co-curator of I Am an American. And it turned into a digital exhibition because of the pandemic. But it was such an amazing opportunity to really return to her papers, discuss not only with Dr. Erickson, but with community supporters as well about how can we portray a figure who has been so overshadowed by her husband for so many years and really shed light on her own work and her own life and legacy. And so that was an amazing opportunity to not only have curatorial experience, but to think about the different ways we can shed light on Black women's lives in public spaces and for public education. And you just made me think about, too, um, like I was going to ask you about identity and how Mm -hmm. that shapes it. So, you know, and we're saying Black because it's very interesting, right? Because a lot of times people are like, oh, African-American. There are other, (laughs) like, the the Black experience is varied, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's different aspects of it. And so how did how did her identity shape her? When I say she's a complicated figure, even her perspective on Blackness is Mm -hmm. complicated. She was born and raised in Louisiana, New Orleans. And because she was part of this Creole society, you know, she was also mixed race. So she had the ability to pass as a white woman as well. Um, She definitely, because of that, had some advantages that other Black women and Black people did not have. Um, But she also took advantage of this to have upward mobility in society. In terms of her perspective of Blackness, it very much changes and varies over time, I think, Um, especially as she's writing her own literature with very to little notable Black figures and characters, Um, but also what it means when she is chairing the English department at a predominantly Black school And she's encouraging Black people to be Republicans (laughs) and Democrats. And, you know, she's kind of like pushing for this difference in political parties for Black people based on their experiences. And even in her quest to, to start an industrial school for Black women and girls who would otherwise be in prison or in a detention, um, facility, but instead she creates a space for them to be educated. And so it's very complicated in terms of, you know, how she views, how she views Blackness. And I think even for her own identity, it was probably difficult for her as well. But I think in her work and in her actions, 
you see that she is serving or she's at least thinking about a larger Black um, futurity. And that's very cool because even um, thinking about when you're talking about the Republican and Democratic parties where their philosophies have changed like mm-hmm. the the party of Lincoln is not the same party as it was because time changes things time changes your perspective um it, it introduces you to other people who can either validate or challenge who you think you are mm-hmm. and it sounds like she's one of those people who um were a part of history and letting instead of history being you know directing her life it sounds like she was the one directing history Exactly. Yes. And so many people forget that about her as well. Um, She started anti-lynching campaigns in Wilmington. Um, She is probably one of the most important figures in the women's suffrage movement, but then that gets overshadowed by white women's suffrage movement. So yeah, it really is the archive that tells you these parts of her Um, in her life, but also how her work impacted the lives of others and history overall that I think we often forget about. And that's a valid point because, um, you know, when we're talking about Black women archives, it doesn't mean that you just have to be Black right? to to research it. Black history is American history. Um, Every um, underrepresented group in the archive has an impact. Their archives are just not in there and it's it's I think it's such valuable work that you're doing um that you're not only helping to um shine a light on these different archives and these different women but you're um validating history mm-hmm. you're, you're putting that perspective on it that I wish I had known again like half of the stuff I've learned like what you're telling me now I'm like this is interesting <laughs> this movement, you know and, yeah. I, and it's it's um it's a shame that uh, and, and I know it's so much history that happens, but it's such a shame that so much stuff is erased just by silence alone. Mm. You know, that, yeah. that's such a big impact on realizing that so many other people, besides the same old, same old people, were actually instigating history, instigating mm-hmm. change. The civil rights movement was a movement in the 60s, but that movement had been going on. Yes. For for centuries before that. I mean, like every person who played a role in it, this didn't live in the 60s. They were doing what you were saying she was doing, mm-hmm. like that impact. And they're living their lives and they're, they're, they have um, different perspectives, right? That it's not a monolith. This idea that change happens overnight, well, it, it happens over several nights, several decades. It, it's not something that's fluid, you know. Sometimes you look at the histories of of certain places and you're like, wow, wow, how could they overcome that? And it sounds like these archives are one of the ways that they're showing how they did overcome or how they, they set into motion other actions that helped others to overcome. Exactly. And I really enjoy your point about how these archives show that Blackness is not monolithic. And I think that that has been one of my biggest takeaways in looking at different Black women writers' archives is that they don't always agree on terms feminism and womanism or how to identify themselves. Like, 
it is very dependent on the time period that they're living in, where they're living, you know, who they're engaging with. And so I think reminding myself to have to consider that is that I can't always project my 21st century, you know, (laughs) mindset onto these women's lives because they were living in a completely different time. Yes, we do still see the same iterations of racism and sexism and oppression and classism. They were also responding to different factors. And so I think when I am looking at these archives, I do have to remind myself of that um, while at the same time making connections to everything that is going on today. So as you're moving forward in your career and you're doing your internship here and mm-hmm. you're moving forward in your PhD program, um, how will this affect the future for you? Like, how will this um, help you with your students or your engagement in your research? This semester has been amazing in reminding me that my path doesn't have to look like a traditional PhD student's, right? Mm -hmm. So having the opportunity to do work, you know, here at the Rose Library to process the papers of a Black woman writer like J.J. Phillips, um, to be able to create a course design to teach students about the archives. It has really made me rethink pedagogy, but also public humanities. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I would like to do for my future career, how you know this work has impacted that, it has shown me that there are so many different avenues I can take this work. It doesn't just have to live within the vacuum of the academy, but I can talk to so many different people about this, such as the podcast. <laughs> you know, right. I can talk to yeah. undergraduate students. I can talk to community members. I can talk to K through 12 students, you know, so it has, I think before where I think I felt limited in my research in terms of my audience, it has definitely broadened that for me and shown me what is possible for this work. And has, have you come across any uh, collections uh, that have intrigued you? Processing the collection of J.J. Phillips has been very interesting within itself, not only because I have shifted from the researcher to the archivist, (laughs) but also in just seeing how she wanted to form her own archive. So the way that the boxes came to Emery, you can tell by how she folded all of her materials and labeled them that she was very intentional about how she wants this to look, you know, once the finding aid is out. Um, But it also just reminds me of the care and organization that Black women have always put into their own work in defining themselves and not letting others define them. And so she is the novelist of the 1966 book, Mojo Hand, And she published um, another book in 1996 by the name of A Passion of Joan Paul II. However, she has fallen into obscurity and erasure like so many other Black women writers of the 20th century. It is her archive and the organization of her archive that shows all of the work, all of the things that she's written in between that time um, Mm -hmm. leading up to the papers being purchased. And so... I think it just reminds me 
of just the labor, like I said, that Black women put into building their own archives, but also how for someone like her, her archive is an opportunity for students and researchers to learn about her um, and to shed light on the work that she has done because it's incredible work and it's very interesting work, but because she has been erased from this literary canon, so many people don't know about it. And so I'm hoping that my work in processing the collection and creating the finding aid will do some justice to that. Behind the Archives is produced by Lily Tarot, Nick Twimlow, and Jacob Chisenhall, who is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Monet Lewis Timmons and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. Follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media, and please share with your friends. You can find Behind the Archives on all your favorite podcast feeds. Join us next month for the first of a two-episode exploration of the rich artistic lives of husband and wife Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de Lavalot, as told by their son, Leo Holder, and the letters and audio found in their archive, which is held at Rose Library. Thank you.